0: Good afternoon everybody It's very nice to see you all here and um, today's platform as you see is called theatre and gender and um, I think I would just say t- to start off with that that that's a very carefully chosen title in my view it's not don't say theatre and women which you might expect but as it happens the panel on the stage is dominated by women, <laughs> um, but there is one brave man.
1: Hey. <laughs>
0: and they are, from the right, Gemma Bodenay, Dominic Cook, Mel Kenyon, and Bryony Lavery. And uh, I'm sure that, to most of you who are, no doubt, theatre um, uh, aficionados, y- they don't need any introduction. But in case they do, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. Um, I thought we'd start by just each one <coughs> of the panellists telling us a little bit about how they came to be drawn towards the theatre. So we have, we have two directors, a writer and a literary manager turned agent. So these are different kinds of, uh, of participation, but there must have been a moment when the theatre became the thing towards which each of you... Uh, wanted to move so how did you get there Uh, and the second bit of what I'd like each one to address is how if at all does the world of theatre feel different today from how it felt when you came into it and made the commitment to be part of it so um, I don't know I think we'll start with Bryony I usually start that way but I think I'm going to start this way today
1: Um, I've told this story before but when I was at college I had one of those um, inspirational teachers and he taught me drama and I wrote plays for him and when I left college I said what do you think I should do um, with my life and he said I think you should go into theatre because you're absolutely hopeless at real life (laughs) Um, um, which proved true. Um, but um (coughs) this was a long time ago and i had no knowledge when i was at college that i could ever be a writer or earn my living as a writer or go into theater so 10 years passed before i got a job as um an administrator of a small fringe company and that like 10 years ago, uh, 10 years later, was when I started just writing for theatre and writing for very little money, Um, but I fell completely in love with it and um, continued to earn my living barely, but always through writing. Um, Somewhere around the time I fell in love with theatre, I also um, met feminism and feminism had a huge effect on me um and i started writing plays about the world i was full of rage at and continued to do that still doing it this week actually But uh, the rage, the unfairness, particularly of being a woman and denied things, f- fueled wonderfully my work. Um, and so I continued my career, but I always think of career as like... The other definition of career is, you know, I end up in a cul-de-sac and then I'm on a... You know, I go this way and that way. And I career from interesting thing to interesting thing and what was the last part of it the it was last part was
0: about how it's different well you've already told us in a way because you're still angry
1: but <laughs> um but
0: tell us how it feels different working in the theatre today from then
1: it's full of um great young writers there's been dramaturgy from people like mel um and and there's a great sort of teaching of writing and that's fueled a huge amount of of, um, really great men and women playwrights and um, the rooms rehearsal rooms I'm in feel much more full of confident women and um, parts for better women you know not not just me. Mm. Um, that's how that's, it feels
2: different. Well, that's significant, yeah. yeah. Um, Mel, what about you? Well, actually, I, I, ha- I, I was... It, this might be quite illustrative, because I think... when I was little, which I think was the only route into... Th- w- it was the way women thought in those days. The only way you thought you could be involved in theatre, from the age of four onwards, was to be an actress. You had no concept that there was any other way to be involved in theatre. So I started... Um, acting when I was about four. I was a shepherd with tiger pants I remember and, um, and so I went then went to university and did two degrees and this is also quite illustrative I got two firsts and then came out of one in English and one in drama and then I came out of that and being a young woman in the early 80's I thought oh I don't know what to do I'll do a secretarial course <laughs> because actually oddly you weren't given any Nobody opened your eyes to anything yeah. other than... And my father said, yes, you'll make a good legal secretary, darling, that's a very good idea. So I started to go to the secretarial course. I learnt how to type, take sure hand, and thank God I learnt about law. And then uh, I got a phone call from the Royal Court, and my then boyfriend, which is kind of a bit of a role reversal, was a front-of-house manager. And I, I, thought it was a, I thought it was a prank call, because this man rang up and said, hello, this is Max Stafford-Clark. Uh, have I got Mel Kenyon and I said yes and I was looking after my ill mother at the time and I said oh come on who is it really he said no it's Max Stafford Clark my last assistant has just run out left she's been crying and um, (laughs) and, and would you get on uh, a train tomorrow and come up for a job interview now again I think this is quite uh, it's anecdotal but it's also illustrative is that I had seen top girls by Carol Churchill And the only reason I got the job was, I'm sure, because I told Max how wonderful his production of Top Girls was. I did the same. And I got the job the next day. And then, uh, so I became his assistant. And then, oddly, I think that fired me up into something. And I realised there was a terrible, terrible assistant and a worse typist. And... So I just said to him, can I start reading plays, can I do... And he said, as long as you do all the work I give you, you can do whatever you like, but you do it on your own time. So I started to work 16, 18 hour days. I went to the theatre and then I went home and I read plays and then I started to give him reports. And then the literary manager got pregnant. And actually, again, you know, she got pregnant and there wasn't any provision for that. So... Kate left and within eight months I was the Literary Manager at the Royal Court at the tender age of whatever it was, 25. Um, so that was, I mean, for me, that, that might actually describe oh what, what growing up as a girl was in those days, because because really, you were going to be an actress, or yeah, you, know, you know, an actress, or a secretary. <laughs> yeah, um, and then I was—I worked with Max for a period of time, and he was actually wonderful in advocating the work of women in his own particular sort of way. <laughs> uh, and actually, and actually, has it brought along very many now strong mm. women, powerful women. And then I got a phone call from a man called Tom Earhart. Who had actually worked alongside a very pe- strong woman called Peggy Ramsay, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think he just wanted to replace her with another bitch. So there, I, you know. So he rang me up, and I got the job. But um, so I, th- so then I became a literary agent and moved over and has subsequently, uh, you know, looked after and advocated the worth- work of both female playwrights and male playwrights. Tell us about how it's different now from when you... Well, it's different now. I tell you what, there are two things that are different now. Very early on, somebody rang me, and I think I'd just taken on David Gregg, and they said, oh, you're taking on men now. As though being being a woman and being gay, somehow I could only identify with women's work, which was absolute nonsense. Um, And I think now, uh, I mean, there are a lot of things that sadly are the same, but now I find that there are a lot of extraordinary young women who are extremely talented and, and have the confidence, because sometimes you can be very talented, but you can't. You either don't have the confidence or personality. And when I use the word exploit, I don't mean that in a horrible way, to exploit your own talent. And I think a lot of these girls are not ashamed of being talented and bright. And that's... And nor are the men who work alongside them or who are their partners in our days. If you were a smart woman you were an anomaly or if you were talented you were even more of an anomaly but now these men genuinely admire and respect the young women which makes life a lot easier and there's an awful lot of them so they can't pick us off with a gun
3: (laughs) (laughs) right so dominic
0: (laughs) did you bring your gun
3: (laughs) left it in the green room
0: very good um well (laughs) Seems like you're the natural next person to speak on this subject. So tell us about how you got where you got.
3: Um, Well, I went to university. I never imagined I would work in the theatre. I did do a degree in English and drama because I was interested in drama. Um, I went to, I mean, what's relevant, I think, to this conversation is that my first memories of going to the theatre as an independent person rather than going on school trips were astonishing work by women because I. There were at that point in the mid-80s, certainly in terms of playwriting, women were doing the key plays, mm-hmm. whether it was Bryony, whether it was Carol we've talked about, whether it was Timberlake okay. Merton-Baker, yeah. you know, Claire McIntyre. These were the writers who were doing the work that was truly groundbreaking. And also, I had an amazing experience in terms of my aspiration as a director, watching Deborah Warner's production of Titus Andronicus, because I was at, at university at Warwick, so I went to see quite a lot of stuff at Stratford, which just blew my mind. I mean, it was so radical in, in every way, aesthetically, in its thinking, and it was so fresh, and, and that, I started to think, oh, well, maybe I could, you know, maybe there's something I want to work in. Uh, I directed a little bit at university, um, and then I went, went and got a job in television as a runner, and I worked on this TV programme, which was in the Docklands, it was filmed in the Docklands. It was such a desperately unhappy place. I mean, I used to walk down the corridor and you could literally hear people sobbing in their offices. <laughs> as you went down. I thought, I'm not sure this is for me. So I essentially, to cut a very long story short, I, st- I started a theatre company, basically because I didn't believe that anyone would give me a job in the theatre. I had no idea how you went about it. So I don't think that's a gender-specific thing, because there, there were no models. I mean, you just didn't really know. So I thought, well, the best way to do it is just to kind of do it and see whether anyone takes notice. So I, I, st- I started digital and I ran that for about two and a half years, all I learned was how to do VAT returns. I became brilliant in administration but I wasn't really learning how to direct, you know, the first thing about it. And through a, a series of kind of strange events, I, I got a job at the RSC after that as an assistant director, which was a really formative experience for me. Then I stopped being a citizen director. It was that's the worst bit. That was incredibly hard. I was working working as a painter decorator for the best part of two years. I was working in a friend's shop. No one would give me a job. I did a job at the uh, gate, but it was unpaid. I mean, it was just trying to make a make a living. And then gradually I started to get freelance work. And then Stephen D'Aldry came and saw a show I did, and he brought me in very kind of gradually into the court, and that's how my relationship there started. And then I uh, went there as an associate director, and then to the RSC as associate director, and then I became artistic director of the, of, the, of the court, but it was quite a slow, there were no kind of overnight you know, changes. Mm. I mean, I think in terms of the, the second part of the question, I would say there's a lot to be very happy about in that, I mean, somewhere like the court when I was there, most of the management positions were held by women. Mm. And um, and I agree, I think that, you know, w- incredibly heartening, especially in pl- with both playwrights and directors, mm-hmm. to see so many talented and confident young women coming through, and some like Lindsay Turner, mm-hmm. I think is, fantastic, you know, who can actually not only uh, direct at a very high level, but can also do big West End shows, mm. I think <laughs> is, is, really, is, really, is really quite something. Mm. Um, so I think, the, the other thing I think has happened is that there's been a huge amount of training now, I mean not, not really enough in some ways, but there are lots of options for young directors uh, to, to study, uh, whether it's through the young bi- National Theatre Directors training course, Birkbeck Postgrad, all of those things, and that's created more people wanting to work in the profession, but there are no more jobs. In fact, Mm. I think there are less jobs Mm. now than there Mm. were when I started. So I think there's quite a lot of discontent brewing amongst people who are qualified, talented, but not getting the jobs, men and women. So I think that's that's a kind of feature of the the industry.
2: Mm. Mm.
0: That's a very interesting point. I heard Rufus Norris here at a a platform he did here a few months ago say that um, until he was past 35, he never earned more than 10 grand a year. And, and actually, mm. you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's quite hard to mm. think mm. how you do the other things that you want to do in your life mm. if that's the kind of economic reality that you're facing. Anyway, that's
4: a slightly different issue. Gemma. Well, I was sort of blessed with the sort of being hit on the head with the ignorance stick, <laughs> um, because I, I, and I have a lot to thank Margaret Thatcher for, um, because oh, I, wow. I truly, <laughs> no, I truly... <laughs> Have Ooh. such a huge ego. I was determined as a small child to be the first female prime minister, and then when she did that, I kind of oh well that well that's gone now. I can't be that. Um, <laughs> so um, and I didn't I didn't know there was such a thing as a director. Um, I'd gone to the theatre a couple of times, and then when I was twelve, I won a competition, and the prize was two hundred books. And they sent me, and, and, and the competition had been at Earl's Court at a horse kind of thing. Because um, like most 11-year-olds, before I got boys, I was, I was really into horses. <laughs> um, anyway, I named this horse. They liked the name I chose best, so I, the prize was 200 books. And then a sort of few weeks later, they sent me the catalogue, and I had to ring 200 books that I wanted. Um, And I ran out after about 10. You know, you 12 years old, you don't necessarily have 200 books off the top of your head you want. But (laughs) by some fluke, um, one of the books I put a circle around was The Empty Space by Peter Brook. And to this day, I don't know why I thought that was an interesting title. I had no knowledge of who Peter Brook was or anything. And I didn't read it for a couple of years. and all I got from it, because I certainly didn't understand it, was that there was a job called a theatre director. Um, and it seemed to encompass the things in life I love. Human psychology, history, music, literature. Um, I was a sort of single-parented, girly, single-only child SWAT, really. And, um, and I just went on a mission, and it never occurred to me again, that ignorance stick was really useful, that there was a universe in which I didn't have a right to be that. And um, all there is on my CV is directing. From then on, I started up a drama society at school. I only wanted to direct plays. I only read plays. I went to Dublin, uh, Trinity University, and I ended up running the drama society there. And I was... But it never occurred to me. I was so depoliticized, if you like. It never occurred to me I didn't have a right to do anything. And cut to graduating and writing to Max Stafford <laughs> Clark, who seems to feature rather prominently. Um, and indeed, I, my first job was assisting him on the 10th anniversary of, of Top Girls. Uh, he, he, he redirected it. Um, but again, I, I, I marched into his office, and he... He actually sent me away after the first five minutes because he said, well, I, I view directing as a sort of marriage um, and I'd like to know that you really love my work. I'd never seen his play. I thought I had an absolute right to be his assistant, but I'd never actually gone into the royal court and seen a play. <laughs> um, cut two. I get that job because I did... I did know his work. I'd been in Ireland and I'd read everything and I did know the play and all of those things. But I remember marching into Max's office after about a week of being assistant, refusing to do any photocopying and asking when he was going to give me a show in the main house. And he went, well, I'm not. Um, You've just started. I don't know what. And it, it was this kind of blessed ignorance of a universe in which I didn't have a right to do things and i was i'm a much more timorous human being now <laughs> if, if somebody said to me you've got a ma- you've got a show in the main house at the royal court i would actually lose sleep about it and i'd worry about that production then i get right re- not then i would have just you know and i'd have had judy dench in the cast and ian mckellen and i'd have given them notes and i'd have not cared whether they took them or not So um. this sounds
0: like a kind of reverse story compared <laughs> with everyone yeah. elses that you started with bags of confidence and are now feeling that maybe you don't have the same rights but but in all seriousness where where so with all of that energy and confidence mm. going for you what do you think now would be the experience of a, a young woman coming into the profession as you were then
4: well, I feel, I mean, I, 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 obviously the tone of my voice is slightly flippant, but th- th- it is true, I was very bold. And and I was, of course, standing on the shoulders of the Joan Littlewoods, the Annie Castle Dines, the Lillian Bates, you know, the, the generations of women who did, and the Briny Lavers, the people, the Carol Churchills that really fought battles with knowledge, knew the, the political landscape they were walking in, and fought those battles for me. Um, there are exceptional. We've talked about a lot of the directors, but I think also one of the things I've really noticed is that I suppose I grew as a child, as a young student. I would the kind of game-changing theatre, as I perceived it, um, had been dominated by men. It had been the Harold Pinters and so on, and then suddenly I was walking into a landscape that included Debbie Tucker Green, Sarah Kane, Carol Churchill, Briony. Game-changing. You know, the most exciting people that were kind of throwing away the old constructs of the well-made play or whatever were women and that was very exciting there are more young and brilliant and dazzling young women directors now than i can ever remember Mm. i have had experience though and i and i like to think even you know in liverpool we have a me an artistic director that's a woman an executive director most of our technical team are female our senior management there are Nine of us, seven of us are women, um, It's it's, and, and several people have said, I wanted to come and work here, um, several women have said, because I knew there were women running it, and I think these things can happen just by yeah. osmosis. But I have had other times when I was on a panel for young directors, and I have to say I was very struck at the lack of confidence in some of the young women. Um, who were equally qualified as the young male directors I was interviewing, whose CVs were as good, but who didn't have some of that old Gemma of a kind of right to be directing something at the National Theatre. A lot of the men presented that they were rather shocked they hadn't already. <laughs> um, and I do think it does need a bit of hutzpah. Um, well, let's. That's a, that's actually quite a good
0: moment to, to to move this discussion on a bit because what what I'm what, what I think is obviously true of all of you is that by various means, and either starting with a great deal of confidence or not starting with a great deal of confidence... Misplaced. You've mm-hmm. reached... Evidently not misplaced, Gemma. <laughs> um, uh, you've, you have reached positions in which you have um, the capacity to take decisions, to make... Uh, to, to have authority and... Yes, power. I mean, the power of the writer is the power to set the agenda, fundamentally, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you know, the thing is, I, I, you, c- you can say, well, it doesn't always feel like that, but, but clearly that is to some extent the case. The power to commission, the power to programme, the power to make choices about who you work with as a director, these are all ways of exercising choice in the theatre, and in those choices, well, not just in the theatre, all over the place. In in making those choices, you can uh, use your discretion about how you address some of the, what you might in broad terms call political questions that lie behind some of the life experience that you've described, including, Dominic, the fact that it's bloody difficult, no matter mm. what gender you are, to get yourself into a position where anybody will take you seriously. Mm. So... Can I just ask you to think about um, whether in your exercise of your choices as as practitioners, you have consciously or unconsciously uh, sought to influence this issue of gender relationships, gender balance in the way that theatre has evolved in the last generation so I mean the obvious answer is yes but it's a (laughs) bit more nuanced than that so Dominic why don't we start with you because well for obvious reasons
3: well I suppose you know the most powerful position I've had is (laughs) the artistic director of a theatre and so that that, that, that's where those decisions would have had most impact I mean was it conscious or not I suppose we always thought we should try and program 50 50 a season men and women I and mean, it wasn't really it wasn't really something one well even thought about
0: but 50 50 what 50 50 plays written by plays. or written directors by. yeah written chosen by yeah, by. yeah, yeah absolutely so i mean the starts thing is with the writer the
3: choices of directors with new plays is a complicated business because the writer feeds into that massively and and some of the writers can choose people of the opposite gender i mean it, you know yeah. th- it doesn't work in a kind of neat way um, but I would say we would, we would certainly do that. But we would also... I mean, I think there's always an artistic reason to do this, isn't there? The fact is, I think, generally, with plays, with writers, it's the people who aren't heard from who have the most interesting <coughs> things to say, wh- whatever, whatever group they're from or whatever perspective they have. So, you know, if we're hearing from a generation of young... Wo- there are a generation of young women who, whose work hasn't been on the stage. Well, you want to hear their voices and you want to get... Them, because the work will probably be lively and good. So, I suppose, you know, it, was, it wasn't really... It was just an obvious thing to do. I mean, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have done it any other way. And sometimes, of course, it, went, it there were more plays that were suitable for programming. I, mean, I don't think we'd have made a decision on the basis of if we thought there was one play that was really strong and it happened to be written by a, a man, and to get the balance in the programme, the other play was written by a woman, it perhaps wasn't as interesting that we would have gone for the woman, we'd have gone for the, the best play. Yeah. But we'd always be thinking about that, in, in terms of the feel the ecology of the whole programme, what we're offering to a public, you know.
0: So, Mel, in terms of how you, first as a, as a literary manager, where you're involved mm. in the commissioning of work, and as an agent where you're involved in taking people's work and placing it where it, well, mm. it's more than mm. that, but d- d- are you
2: also aware of n- needing to make quite careful Choices. Well, I fall in love with you know you. If you're going to look after somebody for thirty or fifty years, you have to Mm. fall in love with the work. It's Mm. very simple. It's it's even being an agent is actually, if you like, more. Well, if I think if you're a good agent is more, in a strange sort of way, more burdensome than programming a single play because you know you're going to have a long period Mm. of time with this person and you'll go up and down together and sometimes you'll hit a high and many times you'll hit a low and if you're not in love with the work absolutely and completely, and partly in love with the person, I think, that because you fall in love with the spirit of the work and invariably you kind of have deep affection for the human being that wrote it. Um, so that first and foremost, you fall in love with the work and, and you want to advocate it and be part of that person's career and help them. I think the truth is, and this is going to be, I hope it's not divisive, but I think the truth is often it's easier to place and advocate the work of men than it is of women, and however passionate my advocacy, this, there is there is still it's getting less and less, thank God. But there's a subliminal misogyny that you cannot really circumvent. So you know it's there, and you have to deal with it as best you can. And 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 you know from Phyllis and Carol and Sarah Kane and everyone, we've come across it, and the, the vitriol that women the vitriol that the work can be met with when it's a female playwright. I mean, the vitriol with which Sarah was mm-hmm. encountered, the vitriol Phyllis encountered. And, and, you know, in a different sort of way, I looked after Timberlake for a very long time and one critic said, well, we don't really like her because she's just too clever for us. <laughs> we don't, you know, there was the idea yeah. that somehow she was grand and clever and therefore they weren't really ever going to give her a great review after our country's good because she was, you know, so there's, and there's a notion that Carol gets away with it because kind of she writes a bit like a man, and so that's great. Mm-hmm. And therefore she's allowed to take on big socio-political subjects. Some of the younger girls, you know, for Zinni Harris, do it, writing something like The Wheel, it's like, why is she writing like Brecht and Edward Bond? My God, what next? A dog will mm. walk on a hind legs. <laughs> um, Sarah was the same. You know, how dare she write about violence in that way? You know, who, mm. who does she think she is? Let's put her in an asylum which is basically what the reviews were. Mm. So you're kind of combating this thing, which isn't... I mean, if if you were strident about it all day, every day, it would get exhausting. But what you then have to do is make sure that those women are emotionally, psychologically and artistically supported, and you try and put them with people... You know, Dominic was wonderful when he was at the court. Max was wonderful. There are certain artistic directors who are far more open to the work of women than other artistic directors, and you know that in your heart of hearts. It's not articulated, it's just how it is, and therefore you don't necessarily go to those artistic directors who aren't sympathetic with a play written by a young woman. Mm. I mean, because you're going to have to negotiate things you don't really want to negotiate, because it becomes tiresome and it ruins your relationship with the play and the writer's (coughs) relationship with the play. So it's it's terribly complicated. Mm. And, you know, even Lucy Kirkwood's just had a huge success but, you know, she was asked questions like, well, what do you and the other Lucy think about <coughs> both being called Lucy? I mean... No. That was actually a question oh. in a fucking interview. I mean, you know, you just kind of go, well, what does David think about the 16 other Davids who are also <laughs> writing books? It's,
0: it you is, know, of course, part, part, the, the unsaid bit of this is, is who's doing the asking and who's doing yeah. the, the, the commenting, yeah. um, which is not a subject we've got time for, but it is extremely yeah. relevant, isn't it? <coughs> Brianne, can I can I ask you? I actually, I'd like to come to Gemma in a minute, not just about practitioners, uh, uh, writers, and directors, but also about the exercise of power in running theatres, which both you and Dominic have experienced, obviously. But before that, Bryony, um the, the the experience of being a writer. Uh, Presumably, there's some resonance there with what Mel's just said,
1: but not at all. I don't know what she <laughs> don't know what she's talking about. <laughs> Fine, okay. Yeah. Well, let me ask no, you no. something. No. No. Al- playing
0: feels, isn't it? But but you did say something to me uh, earlier on, which I which I'd quite like to explore a little bit, which is about the sort of burden of responsibility that came, I think, particularly for people like you who started working when there really were very very few. Uh, women doing what you did, or at least the perception was there were very few um, and the the responsibility of having to be a trailblazer and having to uh, make the case as it were for your not just for your work but for your gender did that was, was that part of how you grew up
1: into your writing life yes, i remember I remember very distinctly feeling that I should that my work should be this sort of job creation scheme for um, really good women actors who were, you know, had two minor parts in a big boy's play. Um, And I think I was influenced by Monsters Regiment, who actually started as a company because all these actors turned up for... uh, These women actors turned up for one role um, in... Socialist group called Belt and Braces, mm. and so w- learning from that, I I did write for ages. I would do mostly women's parts in, in and um, women-centred stuff. And then one day I was feeling a little jaded because I always have to learn by example. And I met Leanne Orkin, who, um, <laughs> and she said, "How I said, "Oh, I'm a bit." I got to do a play about women, and she said oh, do you know, i got to do a play about Jews. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> and you know, because, because Leanne yeah. thought, you know, and, and we both, I said, we could not do that. And suddenly the weight lifted off both yeah. of us, you know, <laughs> and we suddenly thought, oh, we can do a play about anything. And it was a huge epiphany for both of us. Um, and um, since then, you know, I've done plays about <laughs> about submarines and boxing, and the first question from everybody is, you know, so why are you writing about submarines? Mm. You know, because you're a woman. Brackets, you know? because yeah. you're a yeah. woman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: And so, so you have made choices that take you into areas where, you know, you don't feel that you have to represent. Womankind, well now, but
1: now because um, what, what has happened is I've written so much that now um, somebody comes and says I'm thinking about this subject, yes. um, are you interested and I think yes I don't know anything at all about that mm. and the meeting of an absolute unexplored territory um, is, is just wonderful currency mm. for me. Mm.
0: So now you're just Bryony Lavery without
1: brackets woman ha. afterwards. No. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what of course one realises is that it, then if, if, it, if there isn't, um, it isn't, if you, sh- if you stop thinking you should do something and think you can do that, um, now I think most of my work has is it, is it just because there's so many good women actors to write mm. mm. right for? To write
0: for, yeah. So, Gemma, just uh, we need to leave some time for the audience to ask mm. some questions, but um, just thinking away from the rehearsal room for a minute uh, into the area of the exercise of choice and power and authority where you are actually advancing other people's careers. You've already described your own... Uh, Theatre has being one which is quite dominated mm. by, by female practitioners of all kinds. But is it, when you started, was it, was it a challenge to see yourself as somebody who was the boss? Or was the old Gemma still strong <laughs> enough <laughs> to keep know. you going there?
4: I, I think it's a very good question. And I think, I think the truth is that I've, I've been the artistic director at the Liverpool Every and Playhouse for ten years. I, don't, I think the old megalomaniac, Gemma probably didn't think it, it was going to be difficult to be the boss because she was probably thinking that she was going to be doing it like she'd watched a lot of men do it. And I was struck recently, I'm, I've been kind of composing a manifesto for the theatres because we're rebuilding one and the two theatres are coming back together and it felt very clear to me that I had to, to make a statement of intent about what this strange thing is, these two theatres that are, are a mile apart and run as one organisation. And I, I wrote this manifesto of what I believe theatre should be, and I, I wrote it very much from the heart, um, and actually very much as a sort of in some sort of weird dialogue with Joan Littlewood, interestingly, um, and and I, I put it down and I, I read it back and went, oh, it's really girly, it's really gushing and emotional and. And my, my head of communications, who is a woman, was, um, was saying, we want to put it on the website, we want to, to distribute it. And I was thinking, you no, know, it's far too kind of girly. And it, it dawned on me, actually, that being a female boss, actually the paradigms of how you can do that. Um, and I'm going to put it on the website. As mm. um, girly as it is. Mm. Well, as gushing and as, <laughs> as naked <laughs> as it makes me feel yeah. as a woman to Let's talk about... And and of course, I'm I'm slightly gender stereotyping, I know there's no such thing as, I know those things, but I knew this was the female Gemma that had written this manifesto, that that talked about joy and things that mean a huge amount to me in terms of what a theatre can be for a city and a region. (laughs) And I knew that an old Gemma would have tried to look at other male versions of a manifesto Mm. that were on other people's websites, using the sort of language that had come via Arts Council, via mm-hmm. any number of kind of structures that are essentially masculine in their conception. And I'd have tried to write something like that, and I did kind of boldly put those things in the bin and go, no, I'm going to write like Gemma, who at her best is, is, is unrestrained by, by some of those those, those those constructs. And And I like to think that as an organisation, we, we try and operate like the best kind of men and women who listen to each other and have softness um, mm-hmm. as opposed to the kind of male rigour sometimes. And, and oh, okay. oh, they, I I, say, I just
0: want to say i and then mm. Mel, just to comment on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: well, I've had the privilege and joy of reading The Manifesto because I visited... Um, Liverpool every man two weeks ago and it's it's strong it's powerful it's it's full of humanity um, and you've got to stop apologizing for it because it's it it typifies this beautiful theater and the feeling when you go in it's
4: wonderful I suppose I, what I'm saying is that for all that megalomania I'm talking about and for all the, no. s- the time I'm saying that I was ignorant of this, I clearly wasn't. I clearly, that, that thrusting Gemma, somewhere knew she was walking into a male world, albeit that she wasn't consciously doing that. Mm. And I kind of appropriated some of that kind of chutzpah and I'm actually, as I'm growing older... I'm learning to relax a little bit into who I really am. And, you know, um, and some of that is female. And of course, I know softness, male, all of that. I know those are mm. hideous generalisations. I'm talking very personally about my, my split personality between the kind of more testosterone-fueled gemma and the softer gemma. But maybe more, more importantly, you have to put in proper structures. We, we ask all our um, plays that are, um, that are uncommissioned to come without a name on it. We, we try to read things without knowing people's gender. We, we have, at the moment, we, we, when we last checked, we had 60% of our um, unsolicited scripts were coming from men, and 40, and we're, we're really trying to work out how we break that down, so that, and, we, and we we're discovering, actually, that some of these issues aren't about gender. They're about women who are carers, who don't have time to. There are also, you know, they're not necessarily, so we're, are very, there are things that we do that look at how we can find parity in, in, certainly with our writers um, and the work that we put on.
0: Okay, Mel, I just say say one want to say what you want saying
2: The inspirational thing, I think, and maybe it's just a generational thing now because mm. we've all grown up together, so maybe it's because we know each other relatively, well, very well. Mm. But actually, what I'm, what I'm finding, which is I find very inspiring, is actually the openness of communication and the honesty with which a lot of us are now communicating and it seems that political structures with a small p and I think men whether it was conscious or not were very political in how they engaged and I think now actually the lovely thing about having a lot of women working within the industry something slightly broken through, and I think there's a kind of honesty in the the way Mm. in which we all engage with each other, which I hope is very refreshing and is very progressive in the long term, because it makes life a lot easier, I can tell you. Well,
0: let's hope... We we were saying earlier that, of course, all of this change, though it feels as though it's taken forever and and, and has been very, very hard fought, has nonetheless mostly occurred in an extremely short period Mm. of time and so uh, with with generations of history behind us that prescribe a completely different kind of way of thinking about uh, gender issues. And so uh, we have to um, hope that what has transpired in the last generation of practitioners in the theatre is actually sufficiently bedded in that we can't go backwards from it. But um, I will leave that thought hanging and ask for a bit of light on the audience. I'm afraid we haven't got all that much time, but um, just let me have a look and see where these questions are going to come from. Right, I'll start here and move around. One. So the question is, how do you cope with being a practitioner in the theatre if you have children? Um, just as a matter of interest, I know Gemma has children. Any, any other...? parents on the panel well there's your answer
2: <laughs> <laughs>
4: you just don't have time uh, but but in all seriousness um any comments anybody um my son is nearly 20 um and I had him quite early on in my career it's not easy at all and but I think I mean actually I mean um I was once I once went for a job to run a theater and um, one of the panelists um, I'm not saying this is why I didn't get the job there may have been a million other good reasons why I didn't but they did ask me how I did I think it was going to be hard to be a mother and an artistic director of of a building um, and it's it's a valid question as long as you're asking the same question to the men that are coming up mm-hmm. the stairs as well because parenting is hard in theater um, Parenting is hard parenting is Can hard we just say. and and, and I, I honestly you know I, I have I think I think you have, to, you have to be bold about telling people that you're not available. I mean, certainly as a director, you have to say, actually, you can't. I am going to my son's nativity play, and you're going to all have to make some choices without me. I am going to have Sunday, and you're not going to be phoning me on my mobile. Um, and you have to be bold about those things, otherwise this industry will eat you. I, I,
0: as the only other parent on the panel, as it were, I would absolutely concur with that. But I do warn you, I have two children, both grown up, one of them has children of her own, and it's perfectly clear to me that since they both became performers, there is an inherent danger in involving them <laughs> very early on, but it's a jolly good way. I mean, you've, got, you've absolutely got to, you've got to insist that that is who you are and not something that you disguise, cover up, and otherwise try to keep
2: in the background. I mean, it is quite extraordinary that in the <coughs> national theatres, I mean, the huge national theatres in this country, we don't actually have crushes yeah. for actresses. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, Shakespeare
3: Company just does. at the RSC, yeah.
2: yeah. Um, um, it's quite, listen, you
0: know, we could get really stuck on this one, and we must move on. Mm-hmm. So thank you for your question. Yeah, this is actually a really good question, and one which we would probably need a whole other hour to answer properly, mm-hmm. but it's about the power structures as it were behind the scenes on boards and whether there is really the kind of gender parity we're looking for there well um, Dominic would you like to kick off on that um,
3: you see I don't know that many boards I mean I think there are big issues around boards of theatres full stop where do the people come from lack of representation of artists of both genders mm. I mean I think there are there are, there are real problems in some Theaters with who is making the decisions about appointments and so on. So I would say that is a wider issue, but I can't really speak with great authority on that because I only know one board very well and a couple reasonably mm. well. Probably, maybe you. Does, you. Yeah. <laughs> Does
0: anybody on this panel serve on a board as
4: well as having served a board? Mm. I'm on. I'm on. I'm on two. Um, as as well as actually, unusually, I, I am also a board member of my own theatre. Um, but. That's a kind of slightly um, unusual model, which was actually quite generously given by our board. In a way, that that they've given the two joint chief executives that 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 kind of role. Um, But yes, I am. I'm I'm on headlong, and and, um, I think there are issues. And I think actually, you said it before we came in: the framing of interviews Mm. and the questions, the whole structure, the sort of the the rules by which we judge whether someone is, you know, ready to run a building um, in terms of those board meetings. is is very old-fashioned in many ways. Um, I think there is still a lot to work on. I mean, Elizabeth Freestone's article, I mean, Mm. said it all, really, in terms of... I mean, and and we were ashamed. We had been working so hard in terms of actors and writer engagement across gender and then realised that our own board was still heavily white, male, um, and of a certain age. Mm. Uh, So, yes, I think you're absolutely right. Lots to do. And
2: And I think, again, I mean, you know, if we look at, say, the appointment with Vicky at the Royal Court it was met with kind of both, again, awe and consternation. And it's very, it's very obvious that the critics are not going to give her an easy ride. They've decided she's changing the face of the royal court that they've come to know and love, thanks to Don. Um, and quite rightly, they should have come to know and love it. But actually, the consternation that this woman's come in and she's shaking things up a bit, it's, I, think they, I think it's always easier for a certain section of society to want to fragment or destroy not destroy but undermine a woman it's much they find it they they feel that they are entitled to do that in a way i don't think they feel entitled to do it to a man so i think there is still a fight i still think we have to fight a little harder
0: i think there are quite a few men who might disagree with you about that (laughs) (laughs) having been savaged themselves but i i take the point (laughs) (laughs) last word brownie
1: I have nothing to say <laughs> about both. Nothing <her>. to say. <laughs> Not Isn't she I know nothing.
0: <laughs> I'm really sorry that we can't go on but we can't. I've already incurred probably a good deal of wrath by letting it run on five or, five or so minutes <laughs> over. It's been a really fascinating discussion. Thank you very much indeed to all the panelists <coughs> and thank you to all of you and I'm very sorry to those of you who wanted to ask a question and didn't get a chance. Thanks. <laughs>